Hello there and welcome to our first episode of 2021. Happy New Year to you, all of the Irishman Abroad listeners, wherever you are in the world, from me and everyone here at Irishman Abroad. I hope you're safe and well and that you can survive that Christmas and that you're as optimistic as I am about the year to come. Well, what an episode we have for you today to start things off. I've been piecing together an Irish Aviators series for over a year now with the help of a few previous guests of the show. I just felt like the time had come to talk about the Irish in aviation, the significant impact that Ireland itself has had globally and the ever-evolving aviation sector and these characters who are now at the front of it, at the head of it, and all of them Irish, whether it's uh, Willie Walsh at British Airwaves or Alan Joyce at Qantas, uh, Eamon Brennan overseeing the whole thing, or Dick Ryan himself uh, in South America. They're all extraordinary stories, and today is no exception. I have two very different ends of the spectrum to present to you today. Margaret O'Shaughnessy, for starters, is the head of the Foynes Flying Boat and Maritime Museum. And here we get a chance to see how this museum came into being and how Ireland's first international airport was born alongside the first Irish coffee and the role Maureen O'Hara played in bringing the museum to life as well as Margaret's life itself and the impact that Covid has had upon all of this incredible Irish heritage. The second half of the episode is again, as I said, the other end of the spectrum with Colm McLaughlin, the head of Dubai Duty Free. I know, I was amazed that we were able to get this guest. Dubai Duty Free is a behemoth with a turnover of 2.029 billion US dollars at last count. But that's the kind of large end of this story because Colm himself is a, a regular Irish bloke who was born in July 1943 in Ballinasloe, County Galway, one of five children educated in Garbally College in Ballinasloe, and a sportsman, a hurler, and a tennis player, finds his way to the head of this massive, massive company, an Irishman abroad living in Dubai at the summit and at the helm of this massive, massive corporation. I really wanted to sit down with him and have a talk about how duty-free looked in 1969 when he first walked in the door. His own drive and ambition to take it to where it is today, the social responsibilities that come with that, his thoughts on Brexit, Trump, relationship with technology, we cover it all with Colm in the second half of the show. But for starters, let's take the time to hear the story of the Foynes Maritime Museum with Margaret O'Shaughnessy. That's the small talk. Now let's go down to business. Now, your programme. What's the big idea? Well, they've grown to know the Irish much better. We've now got to know how largely their mind works. I moved over here and immediately... I had to up my game. I could not have done the job I, I did for quite a number of years in Ireland. I had to go and earn my living in England. I think a lot of it's in my hair. I think there's a lot of Ireland in here. I had an Irish upbringing. 20 years after an Irishman couldn't get a fucking job, 
We had the presidency. It was some heightened awareness of how hard my tribe had had it in London. No blacks, no Irish, no dogs. Never has a nation so small inspired so much in another. So you could say there's always been a little green behind the red, white, and blue. Our family is very Irish, you know. Now, ladies and gentlemen, we have a very special announcement to make at this stage. Would you welcome, please, the wonderful Johnny Thrigo! finish out the series the best place to go was the Fines Flying Boat and Maritime Museum a museum that you may not know about but many of you will on July 8th 1989 the late Hollywood star Maureen O'Hara Blair officially opened the museum at a colourful ceremony attended by hundreds of overseas and local dignitaries and ever since this museum and Margaret O'Shaughnessy my guest today has been reminding people of the special place that Ireland itself plays in the aviation industry. Margaret O'Shaughnessy, it is fantastic to have you on the show. A pretty unusual episode for us, but your your museum is pretty unusual in itself. Can you tell us a little bit about how it came to be and how you came to be involved? I suppose, Charlotte, I, I worked in the bank and I moved back to my village finds after getting married and got involved in community work and the building of a sports complex in it. And it was really by chance in that we had a great county manager at the time, to Caslam, and we had lunch one day after the, museum, after the sports centre opened, and he said to me, you should do something else, what could it be? And off the top of my head, and I had no idea where this came from, I said a museum. And I wouldn't have been a huge visitor to museums, so it wasn't that I had a great love of museums. And uh, he said, uh, about what? And I said about the thing we came, uh, and that is, we were Ireland's first international airport, and that's a huge, uh, famous history. So he said, drop me a letter, and I did, and we organised a meeting, and that was in 1987. Now, we became aware that the 50th anniversary of the first passenger flights was coming up in 89, as you said, the 8th of July. So we said, look, get the skids on. Now, I have to be honest, Charlotte, I thought this will be this little thing we'll open up, we'll get going and that's it. But there was one other fantastic Irishman in this region, Dr. Tony Ryan, the late Dr. Tony Ryan, GPA. And two of the people that I had chosen, or not, had volunteered to help me with this, were Brian Cullen from Killaloo and Peter McGoldrick, who was later to become CEO of Ryanair. And they approached Dr. Tony Ryan. I wouldn't have had the influence or the way of doing that. And GPA came on board with £50,000. And that is how we started. And that was when £50,000 was £50,000, right? That that was, was really the... and went a long way. Yeah, yeah, that's the seed money that grows this. Yeah, we had to go to banks and convince them to get money. Well, we got four outhouses, and I mean, I have photographs here of it. I mean, mud floors, nothing in them. And we converted them into a reception area, a small little museum, and two exhibition rooms. And we opened to great fanfare, as you said, with Maureen O'Hara Blair and uh, Ambassador Hitler, the American ambassador, who, funnily enough, was Margaret O'Shaughnessy before she married Hitler, uh, <laughs> cutting the ribbon on the day. But the nice thing about that was we had hundreds, but the hundreds included so many former staff and crews from those early flying boat days. Lots from EOAC and a huge amount of Pan Am came to find and came back. And I must say, it was one of the most extraordinary days in that people were meeting up 
after possibly 30 and 40 years. And uh, all I'm sorry for, and I really am, is that it was such a hectic day that we didn't have time to sit down with each individual one and record their memories and things. But some of them became lifelong friends until they passed away. Well, let's let's dig into what those memories are, because at the end of the day that you've given us a beautiful outline of how the museum comes to be. But what I'm surprised at, and even in terms of myself, is how little I knew of this special place, this first international airport that was created at Foynes. What can you what can you tell us about why it came to be? I know I've got a certain amount of information myself, but I want people to hear it from you as to why planes had to land at Foynes to begin with. Well, I suppose it goes back to the, the, the force that was Pan American Airlines at that time in one trip. And he engaged Lindbergh to go to Europe and search out suitable places that he hoped to fly these flying boats, which were luxurious monstrosities of planes that could take only maybe 20, 25 passengers across the Atlantic in utmost luxury, but that could land on water. Now, saying land on it didn't mean they could land on every kind of water. There had to be certain conditions. It had to be sheltered, you know. There had to be facilities and all of that. And Lindbergh did. And Lindbergh looked at Galway. He looked at Cork. He looked at Kerry. And he looked at Fines. And we were, I suppose, fortunate because Fines was already a, a commercial port. A small one, but a commercial port. We had a train service. We had Shell and ESO and all the, the major oil companies had bases here in tanks and they imported oil here. So there was quite a few things in our favour. The runway, if you want to call it that, but the waterway that they would land on was sheltered by an island which is just off the mainland here. So there was a channel that provided great uh, shelter from storms and we didn't we were well up the river you know we weren't out on the, on the Atlantic we were up the estuary and Limerick City was pushing distance to trade people to. So they were some of the factors. And, of course, it's an unusual story, Charlotte, in that once that started to move, the big, big question was, who was going to be the first to cross the Atlantic with passengers? Now, we're very fortunate in the museum that we have the original map, which is all outlined and signed by both pilots from Imperial Airways and from Pan Am. But the thing was... That went on for quite some time. And eventually, I don't know, said, listen, guys, will you both do it together from opposite sides? And that's how they solved that problem. And so Imperial left and came on here and went on to Boston and New York. And Pan Am did the same, coming the other way. So they passed one another mid-Atlantic without ever communicating. Wow. And that- so that's part of it. I suppose the other part of why it's not known as much as it should be. Remember, this was July 89, and by September 89, the Second World War had started. So now, whatever it was about fines in July, it really came into play in September, because they needed to keep fines open, operational all through the war. And Ireland being a neutral country proved to be a problem at times, but not really, in that people don't realise that Imperial Airways later to become the OEC. Not alone were the airlines flying the Atlantic through signs, they also were the airport operators. They actually operated the airport here in signs right through the war. Right. 
And uh, so that would create massive employment in the in the town and uh, excitement, I'd imagine. I mean, I'm looking here at some of the passengers that passed through on those, as you said, I mean, these are luxurious, expensive flights. The names that I'm seeing here are Bob Hope, Gracie Fields and John F. Kennedy himself. I mean, would they get off the planes at, at Foynes or would they? Uh, what what was the crack there? Like, obviously, they need to stretch the legs once they once they land. Yeah, well, this was the whole reason. This building that I'm talking to you from, the museum building, was the Monteagle Arms Hotel. Now, not a luxurious five-star hotel, it's really northern today, Charlotte, it was basic, because we had the passenger train line, so people would come and they'd put their horse and carriage into the courtyard of the building. There was, it was a kind of a square building, it was a big courtyard, and take the train to Limerick to their shop and, you know, and come back. So this was, but the government took this over by compulsory purchase and made it the airport uh, hit. and they put up a control tower and they put in radio and all of that and security was extremely tight that the army was sent here and they used to have sentries at the bottom of the stairs on the way up to the radio rooms and that because during the war you didn't know what could happen and you had to have a special pass to tell the sentry or a code I should say to get up to the radio room but more importantly there was another young man from Clare called Brendan O'Regan and Brendan O'Regan, I suppose, is one of our greatest Irishmen ever. And sadly, of course, no longer with us. But Brendan was a young, dapper hotel manager in Dublin. And we also, of course, had within the political... This is, of course, a taster of the full episode that you can enjoy over on patreon.com forward slash Irishmanabroad. That's the place that you can support our work. In 2020, we obviously suffered massive loss. From our own perspective as a podcast, I had to figure out a way to keep the lights on. And Patreon has been that. Your support over there and listeners who have decided that they can kick in a fiver a month or to support the show for the price of a coffee get access to the full archive of Irishman Abroad episodes including our true crime series an Irishman behind bars covering everything from the Birmingham 6 to the uh, Stephen Avery case with Jerry Buting. We really get to deep dive into some of the most horrendous miscarriages of justice ever to take place in that series and that's just one element of what you get over on patreon.com forward slash Irishman Abroad Our chosen charity part in the space of a sponsor this year we moved to a chosen charity partner and that charity partner is Jigsaw.ie Every week I talk to Sonia O'Sullivan on the Irishman running abroad and the purpose of a lot of our chats is to coach me to run 2,000 kilometres in the space of 12 months with all of the proceeds and every penny I raise going to Jigsaw.ie because Jigsaw is a charity that I believe in from the bottom of my heart I know and I remember how hard it was to be a young person. Most of you do too. I'll add that to that memory you have of that time. What these kids, what these young people are going through right now. And you can understand why something like Jigsaw.ie came about. To equip young people back home in Ireland with the mental health skills they'll need to survive these kind of things and to move through life is such essential work. Maybe there's a young person in your life who needs help right now. Jigsaw.ie is the place to send them. Or maybe you can help Jigsaw by kicking in a small donation right on the website or to the Irishman Running Abroad Challenge at idonate.ie. Second half 
here we are, Callum McLaughlin, as I said, an extraordinary man with an extraordinary story to tell us about Dubai Duty Free and the extent to which this company has reshaped and created what we understand as duty free today, all through the vision of one Irishman abroad. I give you the Colin McLaughlin half of this episode of An Irishman Abroad. Colin McLaughlin, it's fantastic to have you as part of our aviation series here on Irishman Abroad. Now a series that's been running for over a year with the thanks to Deck Ryan and the contacts that he has provided for me. He uh, put me in contact with you, of course. And similar to a lot of the stories of people that uh, are dominating the world of aviation with an Irish background, yours starts in rural Ireland, Ballinasloe, County Galway, and miraculously winds up uh, in Dubai not not long into your career. But before we get to all of that and the beginnings of everything, this is obviously a really troubling time for anyone in the aviation industry or any industry. What are your hopes at the moment for a resolution of things? Or are you planning two to three years down the road? I think it's certainly going to be a couple of years down the road. At Dubai Airport last year, Jarlath, we had 89 million passengers through the airport. Wow. The, the optimistic forecast for this year will end at 22 million. Wow. And the, and the forecast for next year, 2021, is currently 32 million. Wow. Um, in the case of our business, if you look back to December uh, last year, December 2019, we employed 5,934 people at that time. Our business at the end of the year was 7.4 billion dirhams, which is 2.2 billion US dollars. Right now, we have 3,500 staff on furlough. The passengers, as I said, this year are going to be 22 million. Our business will finish this year at the same level as we had in 2005. And, you know, things like we have about 140 flights a day through the airport. The corresponding day last year was 1,000 flights. Jeepers. Um, And naturally the traffic, um, the reduction in traffic affects our business. So we think looking at that and hearing the situation around the world, looking at hotels that are closed and partially closed and so on, we think it's going to be like 2003 or 2004 before our business gets back to the level it was last year. And tell me this, does that give you, like I, don't, I know so many people in my own industry are really suffering with the stress of all of this. How are you managing that side of things? Because that's, you know, that's a beyond dramatic dip. Are, are, well, do you struggle with that side very, of things? It's very stressful. Um, we've had an attitude in Dubai Duty Free over the years that it was really uh, very much a, a staff company. In sidelining, we introduced 20 years ago at Dubai Duty Free an internal promotion policy. So we have not recruited a senior person in that 20 years, and all our jobs are people that started with us 
in a, a, a minor job and were promoted and trained through our system. So we've had a very good team effort over all the years. It's kind of brings tears to your eyes when you see all our staff and many of them on furlough. Many of them have decided to retire and resign um, under the current situation. We are currently operating with 2,200 staff um, in the duty-free. So it is a very sad thing. And when you, when you see and hear the individual stories of people, the hardships they're going through, Mm. And I'm not being dramatic, but it really does bring tears to your eyes when, when you understand what's happening. It is a very sad thing. Yeah, no, the human suffering in all of this, you know, it extends beyond the intensive care wards. That's for sure. I mean, people have devoted their lives and moved their lives in the hope of existing where they need to in order to pursue a job in the business that you've created. I know that for so many people, you've changed their lives by giving them that opportunity. Your own life, though, changed so dramatically when I read that your intended career was dentistry. How long did you <laughs> pursue that one? And uh, I mean, this is a, it's a pretty dramatic leap from dentistry to duty-free. What happened, Jarlett? I went to London in the summer of 1961. I went like many Irish people at that time. I went for, just for the summer to do a summer job. I did a variety of different jobs. I worked in a canning factory. I worked, I picked hops. I was a bus conductor. And eventually at the end of the summer, I really had not saved any money, which was the purpose in going there. I called my dad and I explained to him that I was going to stay in London a while longer. And I discarded all ideas of going back to Ireland to university. <laughs> in 1962, I joined Woolworths. And I joined as a trainee manager. And I eventually became a manager of Woolworths. And as I said to somebody yesterday, I'm looking back, I'm much more satisfied that I swept the floor in Woolworths rather than trying to go through the business of extracting teeth. <laughs> I mean, uh, for a lot of people, the, the one is as bad as the other. The <laughs> Woolworths chain was a beast of the high street in the UK. And you, oh, yeah, it was terrific. Yeah, you, you became one of its... And I own. became a manager of Woolworths and I was visiting Ireland on holiday and I saw a job advertised in the duty-free business. I did not understand what it meant because I was at home in Ireland and I wanted to get the green flag out of my head. I was offered a job at Shannon Airport, so I actually went to Shannon Airport in the duty-free business in 1969. I don't, I, Sorry, I, I celebrated my 50th year in the business last year. I mean, that's astonishing. And I'd imagine the change that you've seen between then and now is absurd. Describe to us what duty-free looked like in 69. In 69, it was a very small operation. There were about 60 staff. The sales would have been, you know, like 500,000 pounds a year or something like that. I was 14 years at Shannon Airport, and during that time it had grown a little bit, but only to a couple of million pounds a year. And I don't know if you've read the story. That the, the airport in Dubai and Air Rinta in Ireland did a contract mm -hmm. to send a team of people to Dubai to set up a duty-free for them. I was one of a team of 10 people 
And I came to Dubai for six months in um, September 1983. And we walked away and we opened the duty free on the 20th of December 1983. The air rent contract was finishing the following April. I was asked during that time if I would stay and operate the duty free here. I agreed to do so. I retired from, from um, Shannon and I signed a contract here for a two year term to run the duty free. And that's 37 years ago. I mean, um, that's astonishing stuff, Callum. I mean, like, I'm sure you're tired telling the story. But for a lot of our listeners, this is all brand new to them. I mean, we take duty-free for granted. It's just there. It, you just accept it as part of life. And you don't realize that this all began very small. And as a concept... Started in it, Sh- sorry, yeah, sorry, John. It started in Shannon in 1947. Dr. Brendan O'Regan was the founder of it. And it was as you say, very small, but worldwide, the duty-free business has grown. And in 2019, it was 76 billion US dollars. That's wow. going to be only about 30 billion this year, but it has grown considerably. And I remember the time at Shannon, people came from Schiphol Airport in, in Amsterdam to see what it was all about because they were one of the early people in the airport duty-free business as well. And, and at that time, the Irish government were fantastic with the support and the approval and everything like that that was given to it. So that's 50 years ago. I left, well, <laughs> I well, left there 37 years ago. Well, that's the, you know, that's the facts and figures, Colm. That's, the, that's the, the nuts and bolts of this thing. But I'd like to talk about who you were in all of this. I mean, this doesn't happen by accident. You need a tremendous amount of drive and ambition to take anything that small and grow it to the scale that you have. Can you remember that column at Lachlan who started in Shannon and maybe where the vision came from that obviously in your head, you had an idea of what this could be. Well, yeah, I was kind of following, following the procedure at Shannon and it was, tipping away and the general manager that time was a man called Bill Maloney who's retired many years and lives in Limerick and has become a good friend of mine and um, it was operated at Shannon Airport by a company called Sales and Catering. Sales and Catering eventually became part of Airintha and whatever I had learned at Shannon and the team that were with me we were expected to implement that in Dubai because it was brand new in Dubai. Mm. And the attitude in Dubai was, and still is, that everything can be the best. And at that time in Dubai, Jarlett, the population was about 200,000 people. It is now three and a half million. At that time in Dubai, the traffic through Dubai airport was three million passengers a year. Like I said, it was... 89 million last year. And our sales in our first year in Dubai were 20 million US dollars. And it had jumped forward to, as I said earlier, last year was over 2 billion US dollars. 
Many, like I said earlier, we've always get put in, put great emphasis on on the staff and on the team we had, and until a couple of months ago, we still had twenty five of our original staff working for us. Amazing! And I was always very happy to boast about that. Twenty five <laughs> of our pioneers, and um, but because of the present COVID situation, they've all now retired and are some living in Dubai, some gone back home, and. There's a couple of things measured in the duty-free industry that are very important to its success. One, of course, is... So there you have it, the shortened version of this astonishing conversation with Colin McLaughlin and Margaret O'Shaughnessy that I urge you to come on over to patreon.com forward slash irishmanabroad to hear the full unedited chat. Two characters, two extraordinary people who have impacted the world of aviation that in a way that, you know, you just you don't really see it and you don't know that these things are taking place. And it wasn't until a previous listener brought all this to my attention that I realised we needed to do this aviation series. As I said, other guests in the series that you can enjoy over on Patreon.com include Alan Joyce of Qantas, Declan Ryan, uh, with uh, all of his stories from South America and life in aviation, Eamon Brennan overseeing absolutely everything, and Michael Lillis, which is an extraordinary episode. You can hear the full thing over on Patreon.com forward slash Irishman Abroad. My thanks to to both Margaret and Callum for taking the time to do this and to Ashling O'Brien over at in Barrow Street who, who really pushed the boat out and made sure that we got the guests we needed for this uh, this series. I'm really indebted to Ashling and Irlandia.ie for all their help in making this series possible. Uh, we'll be back on Tuesday as I said with the Irishman running abroad with Sonia O'Sullivan but for now thanks to Brian Connolly and production Tina and Mikey for making it all possible and of course John Marr for all his extra research. I will talk to you on Tuesday. Happy New Year everyone.